0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. This weekend is the second Sunday of the Easter season, Easter itself being the first, and we move into... Well, we lose our Old Testament reading. Let me phrase it that way. We move from the Old Testament reading into a first reading, so we have a first reading and a second reading instead of having the Old Testament and the epistle as we normally would. The first reading is going to be from Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 20, and optionally, verses 21 to 32. And then the epistle, or the second reading, is Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 through 18, and then the gospel account is from John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And I have to say, I do grieve this time in the church here, right? Lent is to be the time of grieving, and Easter is a time of rejoicing. I grieve this time in the church year, though, because we lose the Old Testament. And we go, we replace the Old Testament for seven weeks in a row with the book of Acts. And then when we come into... Uh, Reformation Day and All Saints Day later in the year, we actually replace the Old Testament reading with the book of Revelation twice each year. So, when we consider the scriptures, the Old Testament is about three-fourths of God's word that he gave to his people. And already on the weekend, we normally read twice from the gospel and only once from the Old Testament. So, the Old Testament, which is the majority of God's word, gets very little focus in the lectionary as it is, and then to simply replace it nine weekends out of the year, in addition to that, it, I, again, I grieve. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, showed the disciples, Cleopas and the other disciple who is not named for us, he showed them how everything in the Old Testament pointed to him. I mean, he unpacked the Old Testament scriptures. They, The Old Testament is God's word. So I'm going to leave it at that just sharing a pastoral grief with you, and as God's people, I encourage you, read your Old Testament. That's one of the benefits of the other podcasts that I have, the the Daily Bite, where I try to walk everyone through a chapter a day, but you get a chance to study all of God's Word. The whole thing is worth it, right? It's all God's Word. It's all good. Our first reading from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, and I'm going to cover the optional verses of 21 to 32 as well. So. Many churches will just do 12 to 20, uh, and only some of our churches will add on the additional 12 verses. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. That's our first paragraph, verses 12 through 16. Now, the book of Acts, just to give you a little bit of a background on it, is really Luke's sequel book. So Luke writes two books of the New Testament for us. He wrote the Gospel according to Luke, which is about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, right? Starting with his birth, going, well, I guess starting even before his conception, with the conception of the one who would prepare the way for him, John the Baptist. So starting from Jesus time of conception, going through his ascension into heaven, the life and ministry of Christ. The book of Acts picks up where that left off. It's sort of like when you have a favorite TV show, you've watched an episode of it, and then you have to wait for next week. When you watch it again the next week, they have to give you a recap of what happened in the one before it. The books of Luke and Acts work that way together, where Acts then ends up being, well, it starts with the ascension of Christ. And then it moves very quickly into the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had promised his disciples, and then we see the life and ministry of Christ's bride, the church, as the disciples, the apostles, go about sharing Christ with various places, establishing churches, and really how the gospel goes out into all nations. The official name of the book of Acts is not Acts. That's just a shorthand that we use for it that has become commonplace. It was originally titled Acts of the apostles, and for obvious reasons, right, focuses on the things that the apostles did as the church. So that's our, kind of our background here. So when you get to Acts chapter 5, you're still close to the time of the resurrection. It's hard to tell exactly how much time has passed, if much at all. We know that Acts chapter 2, so Acts 1 is the ascension. Acts chapter 2 is the Pentecost sermon, so that's 50 days after Christ's resurrection, and then by the time you get to Acts 5, we have this little line here at the start of what we were reading today, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. That is indicating that some time has passed, but it hasn't indicated how much. So what is this regular amount of time? Is this Over the span of a couple of weeks, the apostles were regularly doing miracles? Is it the span of a couple of months, a couple of years? We're just not told. Altogether, so the book of Acts is going to start in maybe 27 AD, 28, 29, somewhere in those three-year window. We can narrow the birth of Christ down to somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. You add 33, which is typically the, the age that we believe Jesus was when he was crucified, and you get to 27 to 29 AD. So... The book of Acts starts there, right? It starts in 27 to 29, but by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, a lot of time has passed. The final chapter of the book sees Paul arriving in Rome, which his first stint in Rome seems to be around 60 AD or so. So we're passing 30 years as you move through 28 chapters of this book. So hard to know uh, all the time, how much time has passed in between each section, Uh, It's possible that a few years maybe passed at this point, but we don't know. So this could still be really early, but it's late 20s, early 30s AD is our context for our text for the weekend. So the apostles are regularly doing miracles, and this is specifically the apostles, and that's going to be important and relevant here, but I'm going to leave this miracle idea, uh, conversation around it for the end of the paragraph. We're going to walk through the details first. So, the apostles are all together in Solomon's portico. And this is a specific location of the temple itself in Jerusalem. The temple is comprised of different areas. So, you have the temple proper, like the actual building. And outside the building, you have different courtyards. First, closest to the temple, you would have Uh, the court for really the Jewish men uh, to be in, and then you would have the court of the women. And even outside of that yet, you have what's called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is where you would find Solomon's portico. On the east side of the temple, it's a common place where teaching would have happened. It seems to be a place where the disciples themselves like to spend time. Now we read in verse 13 that none of the rest, that would be the other disciples the others who at this time have have come to be part of the way it started as you know what 120 people as you start the book of acts but then even in acts chapter 2 3000 were baptized and added to their number that day so many people in the church in Jerusalem but they're afraid they don't join the apostles in the portico because they're afraid but they held the apostles in high esteem so They may not be comfortable joining them, but they have a great deal of respect for these brothers. Um, Fear still leads the way. They're concerned about their safety, which is an idol. And the apostles at this point, and they had done that too, right? Remember the very beginning of, well, I guess it was the end of the gospel accounts as the apostles are hiding for fear of the Jews. Pentecost changed all of that. So as we look at verse 14, we read now that more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes. So the church is growing. The church in Jerusalem is a mega church at this point, if you want to use that kind of language. I think of the Lutheran churches, most of our churches are small. Uh, I don't know the actual statistics or numbers, but I would guess that the majority of our Lutheran churches today probably have a 100 membership or less, or roughly that amount. Our big churches, when you talk about the top, I don't know, 10% or something, you'd probably still only be talking about churches that have five, six, seven hundred 700 members that only have a couple hundred people in worship on a weekend. That's a large church for, for Lutheran circles. We do have some churches that get to be that Probably three, four thousand range. Those might be the largest among us, I would think, in our own synod, as far as I know. Uh, but what we see here is is bigger than that. Jerusalem has this church of extraordinary size, at least for now. So they're carrying people into the streets. They car- they carry the sick before the apostles. Uh, They just want them healed, like those men who lowered the paralytic through the roof so that they could get him close to Jesus and Jesus healed him. They're bringing out anyone and everyone that they can, and this happened regularly to Jesus in his ministry. They're doing this to the apostles because the apostles can heal. Even Peter's shadow falling on someone was good enough to heal. I mean, think about that, right? How incredible a picture that is. That if peter just walked by you the power that the lord the power of the holy spirit had entrusted into peter as an apostle of the church was that potent that strong that wonderful that it brought healing to the world around him as he passed now, i'm not going to go so far as to say it healed even creation itself like you think of if peter's walking down the street all of a sudden grass is just popping up and stuff's growing everywhere that's not the picture here But that is, it's still a really nice image. Um, And to consider him just walking by someone so much so that his own shadow can grant them healing is incredible to, to think about. So the people are gathering from all around Jerusalem. They're bringing their sick. They're bringing those afflicted with unclean spirits, which is another way to say demons. And they're all healed. So Peter and the apostles are healing the sick and they're driving out demons. This is something Jesus already has given them to do. When you think of the gospel accounts, the sending out of the 72, the sending out of the 12, Jesus has already equipped these men to do this. That's a specific thing for them. This brings us to that conversation around miracles. Do miracles still happen today? That's a separate question, actually, then. Should we expect Christians today to be able to perform miracles? I'm going to answer yes to the first question and no to the second. Do miracles still happen today? I'm going to say yes. The definition of a miracle is something extraordinary, something supernatural, and those are the proper ways to use those two words. It is something outside of the way God designed things to work. So it is not a miracle when a child is born. This is the way God created his creation to function. A child being born is good. It is a gift from the Lord. We can say, praise the Lord for this wondrous gift. It's a blessing. But it's not a miracle because it's not abnormal to creation's normal functioning. Passing your test in school is not a miracle. Right? A couple of examples. What a miracle would be, again, healing that's a miracle. Casting out a demon, that's a miracle. Many doctors who have been in their industry long enough, they'll tell you that they've seen miracles. They might not use the word, but if you were to ask if they'd ever seen a case where someone got better and they had no idea how it happened, like there's no scientific explanation for how that person was suddenly better. Doctors who've been at it for a while, who have experience, most of them probably would say they've seen something of that sort in the past. So does God still work in miracles? I think he can. Well, I know he can't. I think he does. They're just few and far between in normal life because they're not normal by very definition. That said, should we expect Christians to be able to perform miracles? And I would say no to that one. And the reason for this, and this is, this is called cessationism, I think, by many Christians today, But when you look at the various scriptures, so let me take you to Acts chapter 8 as an example. Acts chapter 8 verse 6, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So Philip, an apostle, could do miracles. Notice how his miracles accompany the word of God that he brings. That seems to be, in the various scriptures where you see it, the purpose behind miracles in this time of the early church to show that this word of God has authority. And Jesus works that way. Do you remember the account where he, he tells the, the paralytic your sins are forgiven and the, the people there that day are all offended that he forgave sins? Who can do that except for God alone? And Jesus ends up sharing with them the idea, you know, which is easier, To say to the man, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your mat, and go home. To say your sins are forgiven is not provable by Jesus in that moment, right? Anyone can say your sins are forgiven, and there's no visual, tangible thing to it. But to say, get up and walk, to a man who's been paralyzed his entire life, that has tangibility. The community knew that man. They knew his struggle. They had seen him. And all of a sudden, he's up. He's walking. He's walking. That's the one that's more difficult to say because you have to have proof with it. And so Jesus then, having already you know, spoken this forgiveness, he then ends up telling the man to rise, take up, and, and you know, pick up his mat and go home. And he does because Jesus has authority to do this. And we see that in John chapter 3, verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So miracles accompany God's word. They show that the one who speaks has that authority, that he is sent by God to do these things, to share God's word with his people. But now I want to take you to Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The fullness of his word has come. Everything that you need to know in order to be saved has come. There is no longer a need in creation for miracles not again not to say god can't do them but when a christian takes god's word and he testifies to god's word he does not need a miracle to back up god's word because we have god's word in its fullness the people in the early church didn't they didn't have the book of acts they didn't they didn't have the book of first peter they didn't have the book of of even john right for decades and and so Once the fullness of God's word has come, the picture changes. And the ability to do miracles, I'm not going to say overnight, but within that time, within a generation passes. It is as though Jesus gave the apostles the ability to do miracles. But he did not give the apostles the ability to pass on the ability to do miracles. They have the ability to pass on the faith through the spoken word through the laying on of hands, through baptism, but they don't have the ability to pass miracles on. So hopefully that's a helpful conversation around that idea, which is quite common and conflicting in the Christian church in the United States today. Verses 17 through 20, so this will conclude the text for some of our churches this weekend. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, "Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life." So not a lot to really say about the details here. I mean, it is fairly straightforward the same priests who had been so offended with Jesus, Now they arrest the apostles for speaking about Jesus. That they put them in the public prison is the city jail, right? So this is not like a temple thing. They're being held in the temple or anything like that. They are in whatever the city jail is in the city of Jerusalem. And they've spent the night there, or they've started to spend the night there, when an angel releases them. God sends one of his angels, one of his messengers, to open up the prison for these men so that they can go out, and he gives them the instruction, right? Verse 20, that they are to go right back where they'd been pretty much. I mean, they've been in the temple before. Go and stand in the temple. Speak to the people all the words of this life. This is what they give the apostles to do specifically. The angel tells them to speak the word of God, to share Christ with others in Jerusalem and they're going to do that. But if we're leaving the text here, and if that's your stopping point for the weekend, it's for this reason. It's to highlight the purpose for which we have this reading at all. These texts, these three scriptures together as a whole, are about sharing the story. That's our theme for the week. Go and tell them. And the way the text ends for the book of Acts here, with Acts chapter 5, is that idea. It's like the angel said this to the apostles. Well, you are a disciple, So it's as good as the angels saying it to you as well. Go. Share the good news. Go tell people all the words of this life. Go. What are you waiting for? Go tell them, right? But for those of you who are reading onward, verse 21, part of the same paragraph, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the apostles did what they were given to do. This is good. This is faithful. The next paragraph, though, starts in verse 21 and goes through verse 26. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the high priest is the head of the, the Jewish faith on earth, right? He is the, the head of all the priests. He is in charge of the work and overseeing the temple. And the council is their, it's like their court system, and they have different councils. The council is a reference to the Sanhedrin, the, the 70, roughly, men that gather together, and they would meet in the temple for their regular business proceedings. This appears to be that Sanhedrin, the leadership of the the Jews. And so they send to the prison, to have the apostles brought, right? So they'd put them in prison overnight, and now they're gonna bring them before them for judgment, right? They're not there. (laughs) That's the the message that comes back. The officers that went to get them come back and say, "The, the prison was locked, the guards were still there at the door, but no one was inside. When the captain hears this, so the captain of the temple is going to be the head of the temple guard. So the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who comprise the priests and, and the Sanhedrin and so forth, these groups, they have a guard at the temple. They have their own enforcers. They have their own soldiers, their own police, however you want to phrase it. And this man is the head of that. So you've got the chief of the temple, the captain of the temple. You've got the chief priest. So you've got the head priest and, and the head guard, you, the leaders of both. And they're perplexed by this. Wondering what this would come to. What's going to happen next, right? They they don't have any idea what's coming. And then the report is brought before them. The men you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. So exactly what they arrested them for doing, right? They were in Solomon's portico the day before, which is part of the temple courtyard, and they were preaching about Jesus. Now they're back in the temple courtyard Teaching about Jesus. If they were actually in the temple itself, they wouldn't really have anyone to teach. They're not really allowed in that spot, but they are in the courtyard. Um, the temple complex is the referent here. So the captain, the officers, they go and they don't quite arrest them. I mean, I guess you could describe it as an arrest. They, they gather them and they bring them back to where they were going to bring them before in the first place, but they don't do so by force. Why not? They're afraid. This is the same as it was when Jesus was still doing his ministry. They did not want to press against Jesus. They did not want to arrest Jesus or try to move to kill him in public because they were afraid of the people. And that's told to us multiple times in the gospel. They were afraid of a rebellion because the people adored Jesus, or at least they thought they did, right? They weren't necessarily all about what Jesus was about, which was salvation from sin, death, and the devil. They were more interested in other other things, like his miracles, for example. we got a similar thing going on now. They are still afraid of the people. They're afraid that the people are going to stone them to death if they do something against the apostles, because the crowds have taken to the teaching of the apostles. That brings us to our final paragraph of the optional text, which is verses 27 to 32. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they have gathered the apostles together in front of their council to judge them on what's happened. And the high priest questions them. He asks the question, we strictly charged you. That's not really a question, is it? But notice the stress at the beginning, we strictly charged you. He is seeing himself as the authority, the one to whom they must answer. And ultimately, the question of authority is the goal of this paragraph. Who has the authority to to teach? Who has the authority to command? And so they have given them this charge. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In fairness, they brought that man's blood upon themselves already. And in fact, uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, when they're talking to Pilate about executing Jesus and crucifying him, and Pilate washes his hands and says he is innocent of this man's blood, the religious leaders in the crowds cry out that day, his blood be on us and on our children now they're mad about the apostles bringing his blood on them? They've already accepted that for themselves, right? It's a, kind of an odd thing for him to say. Basically, trying to make them guilty seems to be the picture that the chief priest here has in mind. Filling Jerusalem with your teaching, So trying to make Jesus out to be the good guy and the high priest to be the bad guy. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, and this is a fairly famous statement, especially in the the struggles many churches had during the pandemic over the last couple of years here in the United States. We must obey God rather than men. That's a fairly strong but simple statement. There is a hierarchy in this world, in this universe, and in our faith. And that hierarchy begins with God. And God has given us authorities in our life. And there's an order to those as well. And there can be some argument, I I suppose, but you've got government, you've got parents, you've got teachers, and so forth, these various authorities that we have in our lives. The fourth commandment does establish the parent as that authority over their children, the husband as the authority over his wife. Not necessarily the fourth commandment, Genesis 1 did that, Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, and so forth, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, Gave himself up for her. So there is a structure. Government fits into that structure. And there are others that fit into it as well. So your pastor in your congregation has some authority in that way over you. If you're an LCMS congregation, though, by and large, you actually have more authority over your pastor than he has over you. He has the authority of God's word. When it comes to the structure of your congregation, you have authority over him. The voters' assembly is the... Well, okay, God is the head of the church, even in the LCMS, right? Hopefully, especially in the LCMS. But underneath that, the top authority in the congregation is the congregation itself as it gathers together as a voting assembly. And then you would have a board of directors or a church council. You would have a board of elders. You might have some other boards there as well that have some authority in the church to do various things. And then your pastor is actually the lowest in authority. Most pastors do not even believe it right for them to be a part of the voting assembly, so they really have zero authority when it comes to the politic, the gathering, the, the the leadership of the congregation. What they have is the Word of God, and they have a call from you to share that Word of God with you all the time, to always make sure that His Word and His sacrament are available for you. That authority comes from God, and... It is the authority that simply is his word itself. The word word does not go forth from God without accomplishing what he sent it to do. So this is good. Now, there are other churches structured differently, but that's how the LCMS is set up. We must obey God rather than men. So if God has given you a command, and your government, or your parent, or your teacher, or your pastor, or whoever tells you to do something God has said not to do, you obey God. If God has told you not to do something, and your government, or your parent, or your teacher, or your pastor tells you to do that thing, you obey God. So God has said that the church gathers. He's commanded us to gather. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and all the more so as we see the day drawing near. So if our government tells us not to gather, or they'll imprison us, or not to gather, or they'll kill us, as has been said in many countries and many many, and various times in history. If they say that, we say, we're going to meet anyway. Now, we might not meet right out in the open where they can see us. We might not have pretty churches, as the early church didn't. They met in the catacombs because the Romans wouldn't go there. Uh, they could meet in private. They could meet in secret. I wonder about this in our digital age that we live in. Would we be able to find a meeting place to meet in secret? Or are our smartphones and our overconnectedness and all sorts of things like that with all those devices in our homes, are we selling ourselves out should something like that ever occur where we needed to go underground? I don't know, but um, we listen to God rather than men, and that's just one example Of such we would continue to meet if your parents tell you that you need to lie to grandma about you know how much you liked the gift that she gave you when you hated it you can be nice to your grandmother but you don't have to lie to her in fact God has commanded us not to lie but to be people that speak the truth so you speak the truth but you do so in love and with gentleness that's that's a much more simple example of of how that would play out in our life. We must obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, probably the most well-known of this this section that we read in church this weekend. So then you get a summary of Holy Week. Well, not just Holy Week, but the, the time between Good Friday and the Ascension, right? So God raised Jesus of our fathers. So the apostles pointing to the fact that this is also the same God Right. This is the same family for the apostles as it is for these Jewish leaders that their fathers together worshiped this God. So it's not the apostles who have, have disobeyed the Lord's command here. It's the, the Sanhedrin, the council, that has gone the wrong way. God raised Jesus, Easter, whom you killed, Good Friday, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him, the Ascension. And he sits at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, so the nation that they're a part of, and the forgiveness of sins. Now, we know that we are Israel. The church today, it's not a specific geographic nation, but it is all who trust in the promise that was given to Abraham, that his offspring would become numerous through Isaac. Uh, That's Romans chapter 9, where you can read that language we are witnesses to these things so is the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey him so god has poured out his holy spirit that's acts chapter 1 verse verse 8 that jesus speaks to the apostles as he gives them the instruction he tells them the holy spirit will be poured out upon them they will receive power they will be his witnesses in jerusalem judea and samaria to the ends of the earth so those who obey him those who trust in him right the word obey Primarily means to hear or to listen. Uh, context, I guess, to hear and not to run away, as the Sanhedrin has heard, but they haven't listened. They haven't actually paid attention. So, to so those who hear God's word and believe it, those who trust in his word, the Holy Spirit is given. And what has the Holy Spirit given them to do? Share that word. So, they're not going to stop. Doesn't matter what the government tells them, doesn't matter what the Jewish leaders tell them, they're going to do what God gave them to do. That's our theme again for the weekend. Go and tell them. All right, as we used half the show on that Acts reading, here we go with the epistle text from Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be verses 4 through 18. Now, before we do that, just an introduction here to Revelation as we're going to spend the next six weeks in it. Uh, Revelation is written by the apostle John, and he's writing it most likely, it seems, uh, from Revelation chapter 1 itself. He writes it from his time in exile on the island of Patmos. So the, the Roman emperor had tried to execute John by boiling him alive in a vat of oil. That failed. The Lord preserved him, protected him, as he sometimes does preserve and protect his saints from martyrdom. Not always, though. He protected John. John is then, the emperor, still wanting to get rid of him, exiles him to the prison island of Patmos. There... John receives the vision of Revelation. He records it, and he sends it off to seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Some will call it Laodicea. Those seven cities, those seven congregations, are located in Western Asia Minor. So if you were looking at the map where Israel is on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, this would be if you were to go onto the north side of the Mediterranean Sea on the western part of that. Um, so, well, I shouldn't say the western part of that. The Aegean Sea is north of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this would be on the east of the Aegean Sea. So if you're traveling from Jerusalem, you'd head north and you'd turn left when you get to the top of the sea. That's going to be where you're going to find these, these various seven cities. Revelation was originally actually called the Apocalypse of John, and apocalypse is actually a Greek word that means revealing, right? Apocalypto is the Greek word there. It's a revelation. God is making something known to John. He's showing John a vision of something. And so the vision as a whole has really kind of two purposes to it. And these two purposes are not what Christians get in 21st century America when they read the book of Revelation. So this is helpful to hear right as we get started. The goal of Revelation is this, that you would know and be comforted by Christ's victory. That he has already defeated sin, death, and the devil. He's done it for you. As a Christian, you need not be afraid. You are to have comfort in Christ and in his victory, in his death, and in his resurrection for you. That's the opposite, right? Most Christians view this book today with fear. You know, don't have to fear the book. That's the opposite. John is writing this book to a bunch of Christians who are being persecuted and even killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. He's writing this to them to comfort them in that, to know that Christ has already conquered. Christ has already overcome. Comfort. Second purpose, urgency. Christ is coming back. And your neighbor still needs to hear the good news. That's a theme that you'll see again and again in the book of Revelation, the, the idea of calling the unbelieving people to repent of their sin, to trust in God. And as we talk then about the theme this week of getting to go and tell them, uh, the book of Revelation does fit that theme as a whole, uh, and so we'll see it in the text today too. All right, we're going to start with verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Very common greeting. Grace to you. Peace. I already mentioned the seven churches. You can actually see them all in this text later on. You'll see them again throughout chapters 2 and 3 as Jesus specifically speaks to each church. Asia We would say Western Asia Minor, if we wanted to get very specific today, is the place. These really are seven churches, and the words to them in chapters 2 and 3 are important. The letter as a whole is written to them, but it does then impact the rest of the church, just as most of the other books of the Bible are written specifically to an audience that is in mind. So Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. Ephesians was written to the people that live in the city of Ephesus and so forth, but it ends up impacting everyone, right? These words are true for all of us as well. So that's what we're going to see throughout the book. Him who is, who was and is to come, past, present, future. God is eternal. He has always been, he will always be. So that's praising him for that. The seven spirits who are before his throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit. That's one's a little harder. Uh, the, words, the number seven in the book of Revelation, uh, really in the scriptures as a whole, is the number for God. It's the number for perfection. And so this is the, the Spirit of God. This is the perfect Spirit. I know the pluralness kind of throws us, but the seven spirits phrase is the Holy Spirit here. So you've got God the Father. You've got God the Son in verse 5 and God the Holy Spirit all in these opening verses of the text. Jesus is the faithful witness. So go tell them, right, is our goal from the the weekend here. And this is what Jesus did himself. He came to us. He faithfully witnessed the good news of God. He faithfully witnessed to us the plan of God's salvation for his creation. He is the firstborn of the dead, the permanent ones. Because there are a couple of examples of people being raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised a few people from the dead in his time of ministry but of the ones that are permanent, he's the first. Lazarus was raised, but Lazarus died again. Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day when Christ returns because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. There will be others, right? There are going to be more who come into God's kingdom. He is also ruler of the kings on earth. That's a point that's going to be expounded upon throughout the book of Revelation, that God is in control yes there are kings in this creation and they are going to do wicked things they're going to fight against the church but jesus is in control he is king of king and lord of lords that's a phrase you'll see in chapter 17 of the book all right verse 5 i guess 5b there through verse 7 to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever, Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, Amen. So we start out in verse 5b with an address here to the Lord, to him who loves us, that's a reference to God, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, Good Friday, Jesus on the cross, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. First Peter chapter two, uh, holy nation, chosen race, of royal priesthood, we are God's people. We are his kingdom, we are his priests, and we get to tell people about God, share his word with them. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is the, the goal of this verse is pointing to Jesus, lifting him up. That's what the word glory means. When you are glorified, you are lifted up so others will look at you, they will see you. So God is glorified. God the Father is glorified by the work of the Son. Even God the Son is glorified by what he has done because his death on the cross, as he was lifted up, we as Christians, even still today, we look to him on the cross for his gift of forgiveness that he has won for us. So to him be glory, and to him be dominion, that is rule over creation, that is his care of his creation forever and ever. Amen. Amen means truly, indeed. So we, when we say amen at the end of a prayer, we are adjoining ourselves to that prayer. So if John has said it. He, he fixes himself to this prayer. This is what he believes. This is true. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's a connection to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Jesus will descend on the clouds. It's also Acts chapter 1, that as he ascended with a cloud, so the angels tell the disciples, the apostles that day, that in the same way they saw him ascend into heaven, they will one day see him descend from heaven. And every eye will see him. That's uh, Philippians chapter 2, as Paul talks about the idea that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who pierced him, as the text here says. The ones who killed God will see him again. They will stand before him on the day of judgment, and if they've repented, they will be saved as well. We don't know. We won't know. We can't know this side of paradise, but we will see them someday at the judgment. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And that is the idea of the judgment. So all of creation, throughout every nation that there is, there will be those on the day of judgment for whom that day is a terrible day. And they will wail, they will lament the death that comes upon them that day because they have rejected Jesus. And yet, John says, even so. Amen. Even with this, even though there will be those who wail, even though there will be those who perish, those who are condemned, Amen to his coming. John joins himself to that. John prays for that. John John looks to the coming of Jesus Christ because his coming is still good. Yes, there will be those who are damned, but his coming is still good. Even though people have rejected him, his coming puts an end to all suffering. It puts an end to all death. It brings about the resurrection of the righteous. We get to be with Christ in paradise forevermore. His coming is still good. Even so, amen. Verse 8, listed out as a paragraph in ESV by itself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we do have that eternal referent again, right, The, the threefold past, present, future idea. Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, so it would be the equivalent of writing and saying I am the A. And the Z. He's the first, he's the last, which is specifically words that Jesus himself will end up saying here in the book of Revelation as well. And also Almighty. So he's eternal, he's always been, he will always be. He's also Almighty, which is a reference to power, might, power, strength, that he has all strength as God. And so we can think of talk about the ways that he has been strong certainly as he has saved his people numerous times even just in the accounts of Scripture that we know and there are other things that he does as he works daily to uphold his creation throughout this creation verse 9 through 11 I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea So John identifies himself as the author of the book brother and partner in the tribulation. I mentioned that they had tried, right, they had persecuted John, they had tried to execute John and failed, and now he's imprisoned for his faith on this island of Patmos. So John is their partner in tribulation. He's also their partner in the kingdom, and really those things are linked. They are persecuted because they're in the kingdom. Look at Jesus' Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 for some conversation around that, especially verses 10 through 12. And the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he is partner with them in suffering, partner with them in tribulation, partner with them as a member of the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, partner with them patiently enduring all of this suffering. Again, that's the purpose of the book, right? Or at least one of the two purposes of the book as John is giving it to the church, to comfort them in the midst of the suffering that they are enduring as the Christian faith is illegal throughout the Roman Empire and they are suffering greatly at the hands of other people as well as the government. John reveals that he received this vision on the island of Patmos. Earlier I made it sound like maybe he didn't write this from Patmos. He received the vision on Patmos. The way he phrases it here in verse 8 and 9 Sorry, just verse 9. The way he phrases it here almost makes it sound like he may not have been on Patmos when he wrote it down. That he received the vision on Patmos, but he wrote it down later. I can't guarantee that, and I don't know that I would even suggest that myself as, a, as the way to look at it. But grammatically, that's possible. I think I would argue that the Lord commands him to write it down, and so he writes it down um, as soon as he's received it. I guess the possibility there is that he would not have had an instrument to write with while he was imprisoned on Patmos, but we don't know that to be true. So I I would go with him still having written this on Patmos in his time of exile, rather than receiving it and then later writing it down. Regardless, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. That would be a reference to Sunday, to the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet and we learn in the next paragraph that that is Jesus himself. His voice sounds like a trumpet. so loud, right? That, that language is going to show up again in the next paragraph as well. Write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches. I've already mentioned the names of those churches. They're all on the western side of Asia Minor or Turkey, as we might even call it today. And they, they actually move. If you look at these on a map, you would move in a circle. Ephesus, starting on the kind of southwestern side of this thing, and then you'd move clockwise around the circle to all seven of these ancient cities and churches. Some of these cities still exist, but not all of them do. Then I turned, verse 12 through 16, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So he turns to see the voice. That's why I said we know it's Jesus, because on turning, what does he see? He sees the Son of Man. This is a reference to Ezekiel in his book commonly. God never actually calls Ezekiel by name as he speaks to him in that book. But it's also the favorite title Jesus seems to have had for himself as he calls himself Son of Man. So I would like to see the ESV translation capitalize Son of Man here, but for whatever reason it has not. This is definitely Jesus, though, as we look at the context. So, turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 is going to tell us that those are the seven churches. From the previous verse, written to the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, so in the midst of those seven churches, is the Son of Man. This is a picture, like the Old Testament tabernacle, where God was camping. He was dwelling right there in the midst of his Old Testament people, in the midst of all the tribes. Here, Jesus is dwelling... God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus is dwelling in the midst of his people. He is clothed in a long robe. A lot of commentaries would point out the priestly garment idea for that. And a golden sash around his waist. The golden sash, sashes represent priestly authority. Most of the time you see them in scripture. But the golden sash is only seen twice, both here in the book of Revelation. The other time being in chapter 15 with the seven angels who pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath upon his creation, a symbol of the authority that God the Father has given. So Jesus has this priestly authority. He has all authority, Matthew 28:18, from God the Father. He's described as having hair that is white, very much so a Daniel chapter 7 depiction of God, chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, his eyes like a flame of fire. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, we'll talk about something like that. His feet like burnished bronze, strong and The Lord cannot be moved. He will not be defeated. Refined in a furnace, just greater strength. His voice like the roar of many waters. So a loud sound that you're not going to miss. Right? You, you're going to hear it when Jesus speaks. It's a trumpet. It's the rush of water. It's a loud noise. Now, We've seen both cloud and fire in the text, and I just want to point out those are both theophany-related, appearance of God, theophany. Old Testament theophanies, Old Testament appearances of God, often were in fire or cloud. Think of the pillar of fire and cloud by night and by day as God led his people through the wilderness out of Egypt. You can think of Genesis 15, the burning fire pot, the melting fire pot that the Lord uses to pass through the covenant sacrifice with Abraham. We can think of the cloud that descended on Sinai in Exodus 19, we can think of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Lots of examples of this, but I just wanted to point out that connection so you see it. And then verse 16, he's holding seven stars, Jesus will reveal in chapter 1 verse 20 that those seven stars are the seven angels one to the leader one for each of the seven churches. Some believe those are actually angels, messengers for those churches. Others argue that who is the messenger of each church other than the church's pastor himself. And so there's, a, there's an argument to be had for that. The word angel means messenger. And so a messenger who regularly delivers God's word to his people. So Jesus is holding these seven stars. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. That is God's word. A couple of scriptures elsewhere will pick up on that idea. And his face is like the, sh- the sun shining in full strength. John chapter 8, Jesus is the light of the world. Or even Revelation 21 and 22 will both mention there not being a son in paradise because we have Christ, we have God, and we don't need a son. If this is the depiction here, we would not need a son in paradise if Jesus is the one who's giving that light to his creation. And lastly, verses 17 and 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So John falls at his feet, not as a posture of worship here, as it normally is to fall at one's feet, but instead, simple fear. Just straightforward fear. He is terrified to the point of, of falling over. But God, Jesus, lays his hand on him, tells him to fear not. Common phrase from both Jesus and angels in the the Gospels. I'm the first and the last. That connects back to God the Father in verse 8, saying he's the Alpha and the Omega, first and last in the alphabet of Greece. And the living one. Why? Because he rose. And this is what he's about to say. I died, Good Friday, and behold, I am alive, Easter, forevermore. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, hallelujah, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That is both a thing of of command, so he has command even over death. He has command even over the devil. It's also a thing of forgiveness. Jesus has the authority to command them. He also has the authority to loose, forgive sins, or to retain sins that leads to death. That's going to be a theme we pick up in the next section as well. So John told... John given the vision of Christ in Revelation 1 and then told to write it down and send it to the churches go and tell them a theme of the weekend this brings us now to our gospel reading for the weekend which is from John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31 it's a familiar account as most people are, are used to hearing about doubting Thomas that's an unfair name for him, it really is uh, Thomas ends up being the man who takes the gospel over to India, and there are many, many Christians in the, the history of the nation of India that I'm sure are eternally grateful that Thomas is the one that the Lord used to bring his good news of Jesus Christ to their villages and their cities. So Thomas gets a bad reputation, and undeservedly so, but we'll talk about that in the text. So this is the very end of the gospel according to John. I'm going to do verse 19 through 23 first. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Evening of that day, reference to the the resurrection day, so Easter, and thus Sunday. The first day of the week, the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. The disciples, the apostles, as we will go on to call them, are afraid that what just happened to Jesus is now also going to possibly happen to them. So they're in hiding. They don't want to be killed also. And yet, while they're hiding, while the door is locked, Jesus just appears among them. I have heard some people try and downplay that as saying that they'd left a window open or something and Jesus snuck in. Jesus is killed. God in the flesh. There's no open window. The door is locked. They've sealed up the house tight. No one's getting in. But Jesus is God, so he gets in. Not by force. He just appears because he's the Lord and he can do this. He's risen from the dead. So, Jesus appears and he says, Peace be with you. And it is. The word peace and its greatest meaning Peace is a reference to the peace between two conflicting parties. You think of two nations that are at war, and then they sign a treaty of peace, and the war is over. We were at war with God in our sin and our rebellion against him, but that has been ended by Christ's death on the cross. He, of all people, can say, peace be with you, because he won that peace for us on the cross. He has delivered it, and so it is. When Jesus says, peace be with you, it is with you indeed. And to prove himself to them, he shows his hands and his side, his hands still bearing the scars from the nails. Now, the hand word in the ancient cultures typically was a reference not to what we call a hand, which is just like your palm and your fingers, everything past your wrist. For them, it was from the elbow. To the fingers. So your forearm, as we would call it, was also part of the hand in their understanding of things. Just a cultural difference, right? But matters when we think of the context of the cross. Most likely, when you think of what you've seen a skeleton before, right? The, the picture of the crucifixion that you often see is Jesus nailed right through his palms. The problem with that is there's not any bone to hold his body weight. That skin is not going to hold his body on the cross. More than likely, the nail went through his, what we would call his wrist, right below that wrist bone, and that that then would have been what held him up on the cross. Anyway, he shows those holes in his hands, his arms, and also the one in his side where they had pierced him with a spear to prove that he was already dead, and blood and water flowed from his side. So he shows those holes, And they're glad to see the Lord. They have recognized it. And so now that he has calmed them down and revealed himself to them, he says it again. Peace be with you. And then, again, our weekend theme, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Share the story of Jesus Christ. He is risen from the dead. Go. Tell people. (laughs) Tell people this good news. Peace be with you. And peace be with you. Right? That's the goal. That's the aim of our text. Then he talks to them. Well, actually, then he breathes on them. He gives them the Holy Spirit, a special pouring out of the Spirit on his disciples. The Spirit is the one who creates faith, but the Spirit also enables various other gifts. In this case, the pouring out of the Spirit is in connection to the office of the keys. Specifically, in verse 23, is what we call that. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold, it is withheld. The office of the keys given to the church, and the church today calls pastors into that office. So forgiveness is a gift of Christ, one on the cross, given to all of us. But he's entrusted it to the church that that message continues to get preached, proclaimed, and shared all over the world. If the devil is taunting you, tormenting you with guilt for a sin that you have committed, you know where to turn. You know you can go to your pastor and you can hear that word of forgiveness spoken as from Christ himself for you because it is. It is Christ's word and it is Christ who has authorized that gift of forgiveness. That's the office of the keys. Absolution, as we think of our worship services together, the pastor standing up and saying as a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority I therefore forgive you of all your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that comes from right here as well as a spot in Matthew's gospel also verse 24 and 25 now Thomas one of the twelve called the twin was not with them when Jesus came so the other disciples told him we have seen the Lord but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is what gets him the bad reputation, right? This is why he's called Doubting Thomas. What about the other ten? They didn't believe it either. Jesus had to appear to them. He had to show them his hands and his side, and then they believed it. Thomas is no different than the rest of the apostles. He just wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared and made himself known to the apostles. And so he challenges them. He doesn't believe their words. The first opportunity they have to preach the gospel is to one of their own. He doesn't believe it. They have the chance. They tell him. None of them believed. Not the women. Not the men. No one The women went to the tomb that morning thinking they were going to bury Jesus and he was going to be stinky, so they brought spices as his flesh would have been rotting. That was their thought. Verse 26 through 29. Eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe." Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Eight days later could be a reference to the following Sunday. When you think of it, if you're counting, are you counting inclusively? So do you count that Sunday it already was, or do you not count it? So it's either Sunday or Monday of the next week. They're inside. This time Thomas is there. Doors are locked, yet Jesus is able to show up again. Miraculous, he's the Lord, he can do this. Peace be with you. Same words he started with before. Then, they don't have to tell him, he's God, he knows all things. He knows what Thomas has said, he knows how Thomas is doubting, and so he calls on Thomas to do the very thing Thomas said he needed to do to believe. You need to believe, you need to see, you need to touch, here I am. That's the picture that we have here in the text. What we don't get, though, John does not record for us that Thomas touches him. Thomas simply declares, My Lord and my God, it's possible he touched him. It is. Uh, But it's not mentioned. It's not recorded. It's not the important detail for us, certainly. Verse 29's words are, of value to us. Have you believed because you have seen me? Thomas got to see the risen Lord. It's good that he believed, just as it was with the others as well. This is good. They're going to be in paradise. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is a reference to you and to me. We have not seen the risen Christ Not in the same way. We could make an argument about the Lord's Supper, Christ's body and blood there for us. We've not seen Jesus risen from the grave in the same way that Thomas did. And yet, Jesus says blessed are those. Just as the Beatitudes say blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the world, those sorts of things. So it is here. You are blessed. You are his, he is will save you he has saved you and then the text concludes with verses 30 and 31 now jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name so why did john write the gospel why did john put all of this down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel so that you would know Christ. This is one of the ways that it is possible to share the good news, is to simply write the story down and send it to somebody. And this one was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This one is part of God's word today. Praise the Lord for that. You can tell people face-to-face conversation. You can tell them through letters. You can send God's word to them. Right. These are the very various ways through which we can share Christ with others. Verse thirty is is good. Jesus did many things that aren't even written in this book, so more could have been written, more could have been said. But John went with the things that he believed and the Spirit inspired to lead the reader, the hearer, to know who Jesus is. That's the aim. That's the goal. Again, this weekend, you know that Christ has been raised from the dead. This is good news, but it's not just good news for you. Take that good news and go tell someone else. Praise the Lord. Amen.